0: welcome to singing teachers talk the podcast that brings you great interviews insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing now it's over to your host for today's episode it's me alexa terry hello alexa here and my guest today is the assistant professor of music voice at stetson university in florida and regularly presents talks on vocal acoustics with credits from the Pan-American Vocology Association Symposium, NATS and Vocology in Practice. He has also contributed as an author to Karen Brunson's book, The Evolving Singing Voice Changes Across the Lifespan. And it's my pleasure to introduce Chadley Ballantyne. Chadley, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be here, Alexa. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: No, it's no problem, because one reason why I've really wanted to chat with you uh, is because there's this one word that I think makes many of us shrivel up into a prune, (laughs) me included, um, and that word is acoustics. Um, So I was hoping that you could help me and other people um, clear some mud um, on this topic with your expertise. Uh, So first question actually might seem quite huge, um, but what are we referring to? When we talk about vocal acoustics,
1: sure. So, I I would say from the teacher side of this, what we're generally talking about is how the the sounds created by our vocal folds interact with our vocal tract. That's like the giant kitchen sink definition. Um, and and then as we get into like actually applying it, it's how articulation moves resonance or changes the resonance response of our vocal tract and how we can skillfully like learning how to ride a bike, learn how to create like constant favorable matchups between our articulation, driving the resonance so that we can get maximum efficiency and and power and clarity and beauty and spontaneity out of our singing.
0: There are these things in, in the topic called formants and harmonics, um, and I think they sound quite confusing. Um, so can you help us understand what formants are, just to start off with?
1: Sure. So part of the reason that there is a lot of confusion about this is that there is not universal agreement on these terms, what they're signifying. So, And there is differences from country to country and discipline to discipline, and then um, vocal pedagogy is kind of stuck trying to decide which camp they're going to go with. And so within voice pedagogy, there is not consistency in the use of the term formant and resonance. So I find it helpful, although this is not, again, this will not be universally agreed upon across the literature. Um, but I find it helpful to distinguish between a resonance and a formant. So as we're lo- and and especially as we're using like software to look at the voice, uh, signal and kind of like see what, try to discern what are some of the resonance strategies, what the vowels are. So the model that I use for how I think about this is the vocal tract is a resonator. It has multiple resonance uh, resonances, which aren't physically located anywhere. It's a response, a frequency response in the tube. So it has multiple resonances, and those resonances create formants in the radiated sound. So the formant is the thing that we hear, the thing that we perceive, Uh, the thing that affects timbre. It is the result in the sound, and the resonance is the property of the vocal tract that caused that formant.
0: Right, okay, I think (laughs) I'm getting there. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so um, we can kind of, uh, if we slow things down, one of the, I think one of the difficult things for it is uh, kind of thinking about how we control uh, formants, or how we define them or how we drive them as a singer as if we're looking at it from the literature from the researcher's point of view the formants define the vowels the we look and see okay this there i see this spread of formants in the signal it defines an a ah vowel yeah. from the singer side it's the other way around because We don't think about formants that much when we talk or speak. We think about the words and the thoughts we're trying to communicate. And those get translated into vowels, which then drive our articulation, which sets up the resonance that creates those formants that are ah instead of e. Um, And so from the singer's side, it's the vowels that drive the formants. Or it's the vowels that define where the formants are. So I think that can be a helpful thing or way to think about this as well.
0: hmm And we, we see kind of these numbers attached to the formant, so F0, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that's um, kind of understood as being the perceptive pitch, the fundamental frequency that we hear.
1: Sure. Yeah. And it's only been recently that there's been um, some attempt within the voice science and voice pedagogy fields to, uh, agree on standard, uh, um, uh, abbreviations, right. uh, symbols for these. So the F O, it's fundamental oscillation is the right. fundamental. I've I've had to like uh proof that so many times and to make sure that that subscript O is an O and not a zero. And not a
0: zero. Okay, so I've got that rug already. No, that's okay. <laughs> FO
1: uh, FO. So fundamental oscillation. And what that number refers to is the frequency at which the vocal folds are opening and closing. In in previous literature, that might have been referred to as the first harmonic. Um so if you were to sing A440. Um, I won't sing there because it's early and I'm, I have a low voice. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were singing that note, your vocal folds are opening and closing approximately 440 times per second. And it's that action that really sets this all in motion. Um, and that repeats so that, that open and close, we get a rise in pressure and then a sudden snap back to negative pressure as the vocal folds close very suddenly. And that sets off uh, a pressure wave in the vocal track that echoes around in there, it reflects, it bounces around and it's met by another one 440 times per second as you're singing that A440. And that starts to reveal harmonics and the the way the vocal track amplifies certain frequency areas, we get some harmonics that are really strong and we would call those a formant. So. Some of those numbers so that the F-O, uh, so it's a, a italicized lowercase F with a subscript O, not italicized, that number we can look and say, oh, okay, at that moment, the vocal folds were opening and closing at a rate of 440, or if you're singing A above the staff, the soprano uh, high A, that would be 880 times per second. Um, That's pretty interesting, useful information. Like, wow, vocal folds open and close really darn fast. (laughs) That's pretty wild.
0: It is. And then as you get higher, it goes more. And as you get lower, it actually slows down a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I talk around at A2, so A110. So as I talk, my vocal folds, on average, tend to open and close about 110 times per second, Mm. which is still awfully fast.
0: And if you're a chatty Cathy throughout the day, (laughs) (laughs) you can imagine how many times that's that's going uh, going on. So then we have the other formant numbers. So we have the F1, F2, F3. So are these things that we should know as coaches? And if so, what are they referring to there?
1: Sure. So the F1, F2, those we typically call the vowel formants and they're impacted quite a lot by the movement of the mouth. Um, and they interact with the, the sounds that our vocal folds are creating. So we can create really favorable matchups, um, for pulling off certain vocal techniques, um, by lining up a vowel with a harmonic. Or the other way we can think about this is that, especially as we're learning how to sing, that when these formants and harmonics cross, as you're changing the pitch or changing the vowel, they tend to interact. They, they can either make the voice stronger or weaker or destabilize it or make it feel more comfortable. And we all kind of have a sense for this. So a lot of beginning singers w- or even advanced singers will make corrections to try to avoid any sense of oncoming instability. Yeah. Um. I can remember doing this as a middle schooler when I was just learning to sing. Um, so it's a pretty powerful uh, set of feedback that we're, we're constantly experiencing. So knowing where, for instance, like what kind of vowel pitch combination is going to give your belter trouble as they're heading towards C5. Like if they've locked the vowel to the second harmonic and they're tracking that up, why are they going to run into trouble at C5? Well, it's because they're starting to like meet, re, uh, reach the maximum capability of raising that resonance with how they're shortening their throat and opening their mouth mm-hmm. right around that critical point where we prove whether or not we've got excellent belting technique. <laughs> um, the other side of that is knowing where these are can help you kind of pre-plan out both strategies, but also um, I think even more important is kind of thinking about how we use combinations or strings, the vowels in our training. So kind of taking a step back to look at this, um, early on, as I was starting to get a handle on all of this information, um, I was using some very simple older software for, uh, analyzing formats. And I started to notice that if I just sang into my computer and then just tried harder, that didn't really accomplish anything. But if I moved things, so if I like did very kind of pur- purposeful movements from vowel to vowel, then the formants moved a lot. I was like, oh, that's not what I expected. Then looking back, I was like, oh, duh, of course. <laughs> that's how articulation works. That's how we understand words. Um, so I started thinking of it rather than strengthening something or singing more powerfully, if I can move a formant, I can do something with it. If I can move it and start to notice how it's moving, then I can like just through conditioning, get better at it. Kind of like working on like an exercise movement in that motion, that repeated simple motion, uh, my body can get better at it. So just moving the formants around. So for example, if we wanted to move formant one and two in um, parallel motion, we would go from ooh to ah. Mm-hmm. So something like oo with my hands being formant one and formant two. They can never cross. They can get clustered up, but they can never cross. If I wanted to move the formants in opposite motion, I would do ah uh, e. Uh, ee, uh, ee, uh. If I wanted to uh, leave formant one steady and move formant two, I would do oo uh, to e. And knowing what kind of patterns I was creating just by how I was sequencing vowels, you start to look back and like, oh, people have kind of had a sense for this for a long time. A lot of exercises utilize these kind of sequences. There's a reason some of these sequences of vowels seem to work better. Um, So... I was getting pretty skillful at like thinking about how to use these kind of movements to help my singers just get better. And almost again, like riding a bike, like, okay, now once you get the hang of it, now you can really go zip around the neighborhood and (laughs) and do something on the song.
0: Is it, is it though, I want to just. I don't want to have any false promises in terms of like learning a bike, you never forget how to do it. Is this going to be the same with performance and harmonics? Am I going to come yeah. back in a couple of days and think, crap, I don't actually know what I'm talking about now?
1: Well, I mean, we want to separate between, now I'm going to get uh, motor learning theory, but <laughs> 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 declarative knowledge versus procedural. So learning about harmonics as far as describing them, yeah, that 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 takes uh, that's that's declarative knowledge that uh, that sometimes, you know, we'll forget or sometimes like, I think I got it Um where I couldn't probably describe exactly how riding a bike works, but I ride a bike to school every day. So you use language every day. So you use formants all day long.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm going to stick, on, I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, so, but as far as like the training of it, um, the, it is more like riding a bike. Once you kind of get the hang for hang of using these or recognizing these things that you're already sensing to begin with, it's more like interpreting what people are already sensing um, both consciously and subconsciously. Uh, then yeah, it is kind of like learning how to ride a bike where it's kind of hard to stop like tuning things well <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> after, after you get the hang of it. So, so yeah, yeah. the thing that was eluding me though was I knew that formants one and two were movable because uh, a lot of the literature said those are the vowel formants, they're movable. They move a lot. The rest of the formants are relatively fixed. Um, but there's this thing called the Singers Formant Cluster that everybody who is, I was coming up through classical training, everybody who's good does this thing. (laughs) I was like, I don't know what this thing is. And if they're not movable, like, how do I move them? How do I make them right? Does that just mean either you're born with this or you're not? I didn't think that was the answer. Um, so one day I was preparing for, for my teaching day and I read a happened to catch a journal title article, something to the effect of, American R lowers the third formant. I thought, huh, that's odd. (laughs) That's cool. I I didn't realize that one was movable. The books I had grown up reading said that it wasn't movable. So I got to school, opened up my computer and I said, "R," And the third formant dropped just as much as the other, as formants one and two can move. I thought, huh, so that added not only, okay, I can move the third formant just with this speech sound. Then it really clarified, okay, so there are a lot of formant movements that we identify as speech sounds. So they s- so strongly that it's hard for us to conceptualize them as formants. They are just the speech sound. Rather than like maybe some interacting parts acoustically, it's like, no, that is an awe. <laughs> i You told me there was like two formants really close together. I don't care. That was an awe. <laughs> yeah, um and and same thing with r. So as I add that r sound, I would doubt most people's first reaction is, "Oh, you're lowering the third I'd be like, "No, you're from Iowa." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <laughs> so. Uh, so if I, if I do that one more time, the formants, if I have one and two kind of close together because I'm saying an ah, and then I'm going to move the third one by saying r. so there are a lot of speech sounds that are, that we just identify as those speech sounds that actually cause big changes in our resonator. Mm -hmm. So again, we can control formants, move them by intending certain speech sounds. Here's the limit to that. Um, Most of our speech sounds are defined by the the movements of the first two. Depending on the dialect or language you grew up speaking, um, you might have some others in there. Then we can also move some of the higher ones as well. Um, but so far I haven't found any speech sounds associated with that, so they just sound really goofy when they're moving.
0: Okay, Oh well, now you have, <laughs> to. Now you have to do it, please.
1: <laughs> so it'll, it'll be tough to pull this out of the texture, but as I do this, I'm going from a more neutral vocal tract shape, which spreads out the resonances so that the formants would appear to be kind of symmetrical instead of bunched or clustered. And that ends up giving us kind of a twangy, um, not that pleasant sound. Uh... It's great. (laughs) But if I shift my tongue, I can start to move three and four together, and I start to get a more clustered sound, and maybe one that's a little bit more familiar. so what we end up getting instead of two identifiable speech sounds we get kind of this neutral um not so pleasant sound and and then an awe that starts to ring and got loud enough that i had to turn my gain down mm-hmm. um <laughs> so so we don't necessarily like jump and say ah i hear the speech sound you're doing there to get to that movement of the fourth formant mm-hmm. it doesn't have anything associated with it that i'm aware of i haven't maybe there is a language out there that I, that does have a a speech sound that's defined by the movement of the fourth formant that'd be pretty cool as the teacher as the singer the i guess the two the two big areas that i'm looking for with, with well maybe three but ooh, they're kind of related uh but with why why to think about formants um it helps me predict where the challenges are going to be and also where the easy combinations will be, where the easy vowel pitch combinations will be, where does a vowel and a pitch line up to kind of naturally or be pretty close to to the mark of getting the result in the singing we're looking for? Mm -hmm. What is an easy vowel pitch combination to help a young soprano figure out to sing more powerfully in their head voice? What What are the hardest combinations for that? What's an easy combination to help a belter find power through their resonance or sequence? What's the easiest sequence to find that? Then um, the other side I look at that is how that impacts or how we can think about that through articulation. Mm-hmm. So um, in speech, we don't have to be terribly precise. It moves really, really quickly. It's quite precise. It's kind of shockingly precise, but to sing really well, we need it to be even more precise. We need to get the kind of setups that make the instrument work better both for how the air pressure is balanced in the instrument, how much uh, power we're creating acoustically, how close we are to the right style in our result. So the accuracy of articulation going from speech to singing, that accuracy has to go up. And there are some ways to kind of reveal uh, beyond like our normal, like, let's do scales on A ah and E, let's do these drills, and let me hear if you have a clear A. Ah. There's some ways to kind of train that outside of, of, uh, of singing. Um, so one example, um, and if I have my phone close, no, it's over there. I might grab that in a second to show my take on this. But an example I learned from Ken Boseman, uh who's been a, really dear friend and mentor to me, um, is when we whisper, we can reveal the uh, the frequency of the set conformance.
0: Right.
1: When we whisper, it stands out as a pitch. So if I go, ooh to E, you might hear a swing in the what seems like a pitch. Or we could get and it actually takes some coordination, some accuracy in the articulation to get there. So a singer might start with instead of to get that sound. Um, the other thing is the the way we articulate for speech, we we learn it through trial and error, we learn it very young. Uh, we learn it as we're growing, our bodies keep changing. We might learn it while we have serious dental, uh, work <laughs> happening. We might learn it, at, or some critical points in our journey might be with like distal jets increasing the hard palate or very serious braces or retainers getting in the way of our, our articulation. And, um, we might end up with for a lot of cases, um, the most efficient way to move these resonances to 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 change resonance is with movements of the tongue within a pretty steady, free vocal tract. But in our speech, we tend to like deal with what we've got as far as like how we feel emotionally or what kind of braces we might have had as a middle schooler. And we might have come up with all these alternate strategies. So instead of creating a narrowing in the vocal tract by moving the tongue, the throat closes to get to the tongue or we tense the jaw to bring the tongue closer to the roof of the mouth instead of letting the tongue float up to do that. Mm -hmm. So even more than thinking about where these formants are located in in the staff, because I think that's where the math gets like really kind of overwhelming, is thinking about how the precision of articulation makes these formants much more powerful and mm-hmm. and and can and training like all, all of our articulation work thinking, okay, how can I make the tongue work better and freer and more accurately to create these awesome narrowings in the vocal track that create really powerful acoustic responses. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas most, a, a lot of the troubles that I see singers running into is instead of using the tongue within that open space, crimping that open space to meet the tongue, either from their speech habits or things, well-meaning instructions they've received in their own training about relaxing the tongue. We don't want a tense tongue, but we want a tongue that's really active and precise. Mm. So they might have been given the instruction, relax your tongue, relax your tongue, and then still sing the right word. So then the body responds, okay, well, the tongue can't move, so I'll start moving the throat.
0: So does this kind of highlight then, I, I just remember speaking to um, Justin Stoney of New York Vocal mm. Coaching recently, um, and he was talking about how he likes to go in and make sure individual components can do one thing without a whole other load of things coming on for the ride. So is, does this kind of highlight the importance of having laryngeal freedom, which, yes, it might be influenced by certain things, but that it can do something without tongue being the thing that depresses it or that jaw can be independent from tongue so that when you do need to make these slight adjustments they can do that thing that you're intending without there having to be a whole load of other knock-on effects that then push you out of that um desired aesthetic
1: i yeah absolutely i think that's right on um and i think that's one of the biggest things you know um often As we're singing, as we're learning to sing, our main thought is like, I want this to be good. (laughs) And so I must try harder. I mean, I grew up on a farm and I played football. So usually the answer to things was try harder. Yeah. Um, And that's pretty universal. So when, when the singer is trying to do it better, everything fires and we get lots of wasted effort that gets in the way. So there are a lot of techniques for kind of separating out different components of the voice Um, and like singing like myroning, where you sing an NG and move your mouth to the consonants and the vowel shapes, even though the sound is going through the nose. That's one way to kind of separate those out. But for me, that was that was the real benefit of spending time with uh, acoustic software and just moving vowels and noticing when there was power and starting to separate the movement of uh of my mouth from the voice source so there's a lot of ways to get to these sounds so um one one way to think about acoustics is is through the lens of perception Mm -hmm. like how do we perceive these sounds why does e sound like e Why does OO sound like OO? How does our body create sounds that seem like E? So E is, if we look at it just like basic acoustics, say, oh, it's got a low first formant, high second formant. That defines an E. That's what makes E different from OO. Ooh. and we get these E like, we get a sound that, that we identify as E. But in singing, another way we could identify it is that we have E like sounds, and they're really high frequency harmonics. It's the high frequency energy in the sound that is E-like.
0: And can you just explain very um, briefly, if it's possible to do so, Mm -hmm. in in what a harmonic is and what that is referring to?
1: Sure. So um, we've often looked looked at acoustics through the lens of uh, uh, fast Fourier transform. So as as a way of taking a complex thing like a sound wave that's bouncing around the room at 700 miles per hour and uh, dividing it into its component parts. It's a model. It's not how the sound exists in the air around us, um, but it's a model for understanding this very complex thing. Mm -hmm. So um, if we had just a single tone, like just that fundamental frequency, it would be very pure. It would sound something like... Mm -hmm. rather than uh, So we can look at it as like, the har- when we think about harmonics, we're often thinking of it in kind of a, um, a in that model of it being br- this complex thing that exists in time and space three-dimensionally being broken down into a two-dimensional model. Mm-hmm. So that's not briefly explaining it, but. <laughs> um, and another way of of explaining it is that um, that funda- that number of that fundamental frequency, the harmonics are mathematically related to that. They're kind of the echoes. They're the bouncing around, and and they relate very directly to whatever that first number was. Right. And the way we use our resonance, we can we can make some of those stand out we can add more we can get more of them to come out of that repeating fundamental frequency we can get different textures or timbres to come out of that we can get different vowels so um we can also filter uh with just our own vocal tracks we can filter down so that we can get some of those harmonics to stand out I'll backtrack just a second to the R cuz mm-hmm. I was like walking right up to this when I was doing the R. (laughs) Um, So overtone singing. So overtone singing is taking that fundamental frequency and then shaping your vocal tract in such a way that one or two harmonics above that stand out and we start to perceive two pitches. We do that by clustering the second and the third formant together. It's really easy to do that if you repeat E and R because that moves the second and third form it together. And they start to cluster and we start to get a texture that's a fundamental frequency and a really strong upper harmonic. So something like this. So I'm letting it pop back open to E now, but you can hear that moment where there's another flutey tone that kicks in. Then if I go one step further and put the tip of my tongue on the roof of my mouth, um, then we can start to hear individual harmonics or maybe hear it a little bit more clearly. So that that takes that complex sound and filters it down to just a couple components. As I'm talking, there are way more harmonics. It's a much more complex sound that isn't filtered down quite as severely as that overtone singing. Mm. The other way we can think about this is high frequency energy versus low frequency energy. So as I'm talking right now, um, there is energy or acoustic energy from my fundamental frequency, which is down around an A2 usually. I'm a little Mm. bit excited, so it's a little Mm. higher today. Um, Going all the way up, depending on the sound I'm on, but in my normal speaking, going up to about the top octave on the piano Mm -hmm. constantly, way higher than I can actually sing. Um, And in my sound, because I speak a little bit low, um, that we perceive that as kind of a those high frequency harmonics as a buzzing sound. Mm -hmm. So as I've been talking, you probably notice like kind of a, there's a little bit of a twang to my voice or a rattly sound to my voice. Um, Maybe it didn't stand out at first, but I'll draw your attention to it now. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to bring the high frequency harmonics, the very high harmonics in and out of my sound and see if you notice this like metallic cicada sound. So those, those buzzy metallic cicada sounds, those are like in my, that note that I was singing, those are probably like harmonics 30 through 35, maybe 20 through 35, um, that are standing out now. Um, so we can think about those harmonics as like, yes, these, these things that we could use a mathematical model to make individual components out of. Mm-hmm. or we could think of um, about them as uh acoustic energy in the sound that that gives certain qualities to the sound mm-hmm. so that buzziness that buzziness in my sound um that roughness that kind of rough sound that helps us or that indicates to us that it's a more of a spoken chest voice like sound um Rock singing uses a lot of that energy in rock technique. Mm-hmm. A big part of rock technique is figuring out how to maximize high frequency energy, even beyond the range of the piano, in the timbres that you're working with. Um, classical soprano singing does the opposite. <laughs> There's, there are very few uh, harmonics above, like harmonic six, seven, eight, as a soprano is singing up into the t- upper part of their range. There are very few harmonics. So we end up with a pure sound that seems more like head voice. So mm-hmm. we say, we could look at it as like the buzzy high harmonics, which come from resonance work and efficiency, define the, l- the chest-like sounds. Mm-hmm. And the lower harmonics, which have a pure quality, often an ooh like quality or o like quality, mm-hmm. uh, ha- define something that we might call head voice which for me as someone who teaches belt and sings bass baritone was kind of mind-blowing to think Mm -hmm. oh like the lower parts of my tone feel kind of like my head voice they feel kind of pure those are the parts that make me sound deeper or pure or darker and then the high buzzy stuff that kind of freaks me out on the inside (laughs) (laughs) because it's rattling around and it seems like it's rattling around up by my cheekbones That's the part that gives me cut and clarity and E-like sounds. So going back to where this idea started um, with separating things and making sure things are doing their jobs well and, and other things aren't getting in the way, we can create something that sounds like an E in a lot of different ways. So the vowel E needs high frequency energy to stand out in contrast to the low frequency energy in your tone. We could do that easily. We could do <laughs> E, A, ah, E, A, ah, E, just moving the tongue and the mouth mm-hmm. to rearrange things so that the, the, the high frequency energy stands out. And we're like, ah, oh, that's an E. We could also change what's happening here and press the voice to weaken the low tones to make the E tones that are already there stand out a little bit more. That's a little rougher (laughs) than, or not nearly as much fun as the skillful one, but I didn't have to move my tongue as much and I still got something that was Mm. E-like. I didn't mean for that example to be so divergent, but that is, that is, one way to to think about this: um, How are we creating those tones? Mm-hmm. Um, the other side of that, we talked about the high tones, the the lowest tones, so the fundamental frequency, maybe the second harmonic, third harmonic, depending on how low you're singing. Um, those will those in part have like an ooh like quality, and depending on the style, they might give us more a sense of more depth or roundness. And and before I go any further, I've got to thank Ian Howell for bringing this these concepts uh, to our field and uh, for the many times that we've spent discussing this. Um, but uh, I'll take the now I'll take the lowest frequencies in and out, or I'll weaken them and strengthen them, and see if you notice that difference of this pure ooh like quality going in and out of the tone. E- Yeah, for so sure. that that roundness that came in, if we were watching on a, like Voce Vista or something, you would see the the fundamental frequency or the first harmonic get much stronger as I increase that that round part of the tone. Mm. Um, and and it can help us start to notice that there's a there's an ooh like quality present in a in a lot of our singing, especially if we think about. Singing that sounds round or sounds deeper. This applies to belt too. Thinking about, okay, what separates a belt that's more rock like and twangy compared to one that is uh, either like, you know, mid 20th century New York style or uh, maybe a little bit more folk style belt, um, one that sounds deeper and chestier. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, maybe there's more strength in the low tones, which actually have kind of a pure quality to them in those darker belts. And then the twangy ones like, oh, okay, we've configured the vocal tract in a way to really maximize super duper high harmonics, Mm. to give it this much brighter sound. And can Um, I
0: be really cheeky? And I know it's early there for you (laughs) to maybe give an example or, or a guide in terms of, the um, configurations, coordinations, or, or whatever you would actually guide for those different types of belts. So say mm-hmm. a musical theater belt versus um, an R&B belt. Mm-hmm. What would that look like?
1: Sure. So um, the way I lead people to this, because it's a little tricky because it involves um, to get the, the really high frequency harmonics to stand out. It involves a very skillful narrowing of the pharynx. Mm -hmm. That is treacherous territory. (laughs) When it's done well, it feels great and it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't feel all that constrictive. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very distinctive, but it, it, it's a little tricky to just say to a singer, you need to narrow your pharynx. That's pretty useless (laughs) direction to give, uh, maybe completely destructive. So, the way I lead someone to that to find more high frequency energy in their voice. So, um, especially over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of cross training work with classically trained sopranos, particularly, um, going into mixed belt, working on contemporary musical theater, Mm. where we need some of that, uh, um, commercial, uh, contemporary commercial music influence in the sound. We need more of those high harmonics to sound a little Mm -hmm. bit more like, uh Tony Collette or Adina Menzel. Um so rather than saying, okay, we need to narrow the pharynx or we need to make a sh- certain mouth shape, we'll train it um in the around middle C to uh mm, roughly C to C, so C4 to C5. Mm-hmm. And I'll draw their attention to those buzzy sounds in my voice and then their own voice. So like I was doing before where I took the buzziness in and out of the E. Mm. And then we'll, once they have, once they notice that in their own sound, then thinking about a combination of flow phonation. So encouraging a, you know, a balanced, easy registration that actually can create really powerful belty sounds. Mm. Um, very powerful high harmonics and then listen for that buzzing, like, chirpy metallic cicada sound that we tend to experience as localized sound somewhere in the region of the cheeks or Mm -hmm. uh, above the palate. It's kind of an illusion, but it's so vivid that it might as well be real. Um, Sometimes we get confused if it's actually airflow through the nose or not, but these, these high frequency harmonics, we hear that buzzing up around our palate. So then, Leading them through just very simple patterns of, uh, of listening to that buzzy quality and seeing if they can enhance it without pressing down on their voice. Yeah. So something like, um, <laughs> <laughs> no, <Nope>, pressed. <laughs> Gently and flowy, can we sing and maximize those buzzy sounds yeah. on an E or an O? Even on that OO, which is concentrated on the low, I can still hear some of those flyaways yeah. rattling around. Then, can I take that into words? Ooh, ah, ooh, ah places I'll remember so tracking that buzziness Ooh, uh, there are play okay I've got a lot of buzz there and not much pressure in my throat oh. there are places I'll remember all my life though some I've just lost all the buzziness some forever not for better some have gone so that's that's proven to be one of the most effective powerful ways to lead people to that in their own voice
0: and is that what um because i've read in uh, ken Bozeman's practical vocal <coughs> acoustics book about tracking um f1 with a with harmonic uh, number 2 is that is that what you're doing there is that that description
1: Honestly, it's it's different. So um, tracking F1 to H2 is a way of maintaining a yell-like quality. Right. It can be very efficient, very powerful. Um, and certainly, a lot of singers use this. Um, but it's pretty limited.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: really only works in a, in a small pitch range on a limited number of vowels. Right. It's for <clears throat> you're kind of using it to jump the instrument into a mode one, a very heavy mode one phonation in the range of the treble staff. Yeah. So it we can kind of start hearing that interaction, because it's not just tracking, it's how it interacts with the source. Um, and it means that the vowel has to be if we think about where the first formant location of the vowel is, it has to track an octave above the note you're singing. And about it, it's a it's pretty easy to get the first formant to a C6-ish. It is possible to get it higher than that, but not much higher. Mm. But that's, so we're hitting the maximum range at C6, which means an octave below that, where we'd be singing the notes in this strategy. C5, that's right again, that's right where the prove it section is of belting. Mm. And we're maxing it out right there. So that's pretty treacherous and it only works on very open vowels. So in this, so for our, what what you see kind of as, as you study singers through uh, Voce Vista or acoustic software kind of seeing what they're doing you what I've noticed over the years is that actually very few Singers use that strategy exclusively. Mm-hmm. It's the exception. There, certainly, it's used. It works on p- particular vowel pitch combinations to create very powerful sounds. It's a very important strategy. But as far as like the one that defines the genre or defines like how the technique works, it's it's a it's a very limited one. Mm-hmm. Um, because we gotta communicate we got to use a lot of different sounds that are it's not possible to do that an e with a high first formant Mm. so by training this on oo and e i'm actually taking the singer away from relying on that strategy for all of their belting Mm. we'll probably learn how to use it for very particular notes like especially if you have an open vowel around a g4 F4, A4, that's like the sweet spot yeah. <laughs> for that strategy. Um, but for most of the rest of the time, we can create a darker, deeper, or twangier belt that is more flexible and more, more has better velocity to it as far as like movement um, and has a wider range of pitch and a ri- wider range of vowel sounds if instead of relying on that setup, we can maximize the buzzy quality of the high harmonics way above there that we'll never sing up to,
0: mm.
1: and actually increase the power and clarity of the second formant.
0: Mm. And to to kind of revise what you were doing there, it was keeping the ooh and ease for that kind of nice relaxed throat, but then yeah. moving those lovely movable bits of compression or larynx or tongue uh, and seeing and then coming out onto the other vowels and seeing if you can maintain that same level of comfort, but that buzzy, mm-hmm. buzzy deliciousness.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, absolutely. And um, so and by using the U and E in particular, um, they have the lowest first torment. Mm. So instead of setting us up singing on ah eh or ah to learn this, where we're always kind of in danger of relying on that yell tracking, Mm. Which again, really useful, really important, super limited. Mm. It's like you. It's like use it maybe one or two notes per song, yeah. <laughs> if that. Um, so, uh, but by by setting this up on a really low first formant vowel, it kind of helps ensure that we're learning this buzzy, mixy can become belty quality. Mm. Um without relying on that tracking.
0: Mm. yeah, it's so
1: like we've taken that first formant and lowered it completely out of the way and actually put it much closer to the first harmonic, which makes the the phonation work better. So we're resonating the frequency at which our vocal folds are opening and closing. It's encouraging flow phonation. It's encouraging a really efficient, um, sound, a very efficient mm. production, even though it doesn't necessarily at first glance seem that revolutionary or wild, it's really conditioning a mm. lot of things and really setting things up for maximum efficiency.
0: Mm. And can I ask you about another exercise um that I've heard mm-hmm. about? Um, it's your weird exercise, and that's not me being rude or having no manners. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's what you've called your weird exercise, and I think it kind of includes <clears throat> that tongue attraction that you gave an example of earlier on.
1: Yeah. So like I said earlier, um, in in my work with acoustics, if I can figure out a silly sound or speech sound that moves a formant, then I can do something with it. The R exercise um, at first was just trying to figure out how to move the third formant. And then noticing, oh my gosh. This R that I've been given so much grief about in my classical training is actually really cool. <laughs> then it progressed from there. It just so happened that at the that same day, actually, all my students came in saying, hey, in our choir, we have to learn how to overtone sing. Do you know how to do that? I was like, weirdly, I just figured it out this morning <laughs> now how exactly it works. Then um, what I started noticing was when you would sing R, it became really clear why we don't do that <laughs> because it messes with our perception of the pitch. It knocks out the high tones. Um, but when you release it, it, when you go in a sequence of E, R, er, R, ah, you've actually picked up a lot of good stuff in that temporary er where getting the second and the third formant so close together gets them really strong, allowing the tongue to go th- through that huge range of motion kind of is like a kinesthetic exercise where your body's like, oh, it can do all those things <laughs> instead of just hold in one position the whole time. Um, Then I was noticing that the resulting awe would have a really strong synchronous formant cluster, stronger than where I started. Um, so then the last thing that I came through, and this is where it really kind of started taking off, um, I had two problems that I was trying to solve. I was trying to, and both related to the second formant. Um, as I mentioned just a second ago on that U and ETH training and using second formant as kind of the driver for, for a lot of different techniques, including belt and mix, um, is I knew from reading Donald Miller, that second formant was like really important <laughs> for tenors and baritones and that learning how to sing with that as like the strongest part of the sound, that was really important, but how to do that, like I just struggled to get my body to go there, you know, so drawn to that first formant, to that natural instinctual yell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't seem to get get my body to go to a place where that second formant would do what it I knew theoretically was supposed to do, so what I started noticing was that by sequencing e er and then whatever vowel comes next in this case an a that as I would come out of the er that for whatever reason there are few but uh but for several reasons. That second formant was way stronger after that R, and it started getting easier for myself and for a lot of the singers I work with to start singing into this really important strategy that I've seen in samples of just about every professional singer in every style. Like it is, it is one of the things that kind of separates um, the the people that we that's I. Come to believe it's one of the indicators to us like oh that's that's what a professional sounds like in multiple styles and genres mm-hmm. like lots of people are using this um whether or not they know it you know does that doesn't really matter but <laughs> you look at the signal like oh my gosh they're all doing the same thing that's wild mm-hmm. um so i was trying to help uh all my singers figure out how to use that resonance strategy and it was tricky um and i was also trying to help my belters sing into that so that they weren't limited to just tracking that yell. Yeah. And I was trying to help my classical treble singers with singing ah in their head voice in the middle of the staff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's really challenging. It it often like feels weak or breathy or unstable, or like you can't, there's nothing to hang on to. Um, And so I I knew that from from studying a lot of recordings of singers um, throughout the 20th and early 21st century that a lot of classical sopranos used this technique in that range. Whether or not they consciously use it or identify it that way, doesn't really matter. Uh, But it's there in the signal. Mm. Um, So I started using this to teach a lot of different styles, a lot of different voice types, um, how to find a really usable second resonance strategy. Um, It's been interesting to uh, see how how much dialect and language impacts this. Of course, famously, this R, retroflex R, is not a very common sound in the world. There aren't that many languages that feature it. And even in within English, there aren't that many dialects within English that actually feature a retroflex R. Mm. So, for example, in Iowa and Illinois, this exercise was the easiest exercise to teach ever. <laughs> Everybody can do a retroflex R. Uh, in Florida, um, it's more, more common that people speak with a bird R. So the tip of the tongue stays down, but it still has that rhotic color. Mm-hmm. It's way harder to teach this exercise. To someone who's never really spoken with a retroflex R growing mm-hmm. up. So even within English, there are some challenges to this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, that's, that's what I do with it. The exercise, um, starts with we. We can do lots of different variations on it, but the basic idea is you start with we to encourage, uh, a strong fundamental frequency to, uh, get a big movement right off the bat of the second formant because you're mm-hmm. going oo e weep. So it splits those, takes them from both focused near the fundamental, then splits them, and then switching to R, which clusters the second and the third. Weer. So we get weer. All right And it is a retroflex, so the tip of the tongue tips up and brushes the roof of the mouth. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't work as well with a bird R, where we still get the rhotic, but the tip of the tongue stays down. We are, That's a bird. We are, retroflex.
0: R uh, uh.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so then, as you go to the next vowel, so in this exercise in aw. You let the retroflex fall, but you keep, you just kind of look for an awe that feels put together, that feels acoustically or sound-wise or placement-wise, however you want to describe it, that it feels powerful and put together in your head and doesn't take that much effort from your throat. Mm We are... And again, I need to turn down my gain because it makes it loud really fast. <laughs> so I'm letting the tongue fall back. I feel like I keep maybe 2% of that R mm-hmm. in the articulation. Um, and then you can run it through a scale. We are. Um, And then depending on the singer, so if I'm working with uh, a treble singer, we might start like center that, the starting note around an F4. So where E kind of encourages a strong fundamental, it's kind of easy vowel to sing there, and then expand in both directions from there. The setup for treble singers works best from kind of F4 expanding out uh, to C4 and C5, That's kind of where the setup works the best and the R Um, doesn't necessarily feel that great to try to start this exercise at a G5, Mm -hmm. Um, but you can then take your patterns that come after that to go the direction you need to go on the vowel that can cover much more range. Um, And for non-treble singers, uh, it would start this exercise between Mm F3 and C4. Um, And then depending on how high their voice naturally sits, we might take, the starting note much higher than that, or if they have a lower natural voice, kind of stay within there as far as where we're starting this, and then branching out.
0: Mm. Okay, I can't wait to try it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be weirding the whole <laughs> way through.
1: Yeah, and then you can sequence it with like if your starting note we are uh, there are places I'll remember we are uh, there there are places. And then just kind of find like that nice, easy, buzzy, focused Mm. sound, and then roll with it.
0: Mm. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Uh, And you mentioned before about um, kind of spectrographic programs that can kind of give us that that visual instead of just relying on our ears, um, having mm-hmm. something to look at and be able to see the energy boosts and where things aren't quite as energized. Um, so which programs do you use? Oh, you mentioned Voce Vista there. Is that one that you would kind of recommend or are there yeah. other ones?
1: There are, there are mobile ones that are, that are okay. I, I started out working with just the visual from the original Voce Vista and some, Pro, um, some software that was developed for linguistics and it was helpful to get the visual feedback. Um, it's where things started, but where this really became much more real and applicable and urgent, um, was when I started working with Voce Vista Video, uh, because of the, the auditory component. Mm. So what makes Vocevista video so powerful, I think, uh, are the filters. So you can you can drop a file into it. So you've got your favorite singer. You want to see what they're doing. Drop it into there or you can record yourself into it. And then on the playback, it has these very easy to use filters where you can listen to different parts of the sound. And that's when this I was I was making some nice progress with like thinking about singing through the lens of acoustics, but that that was the point where suddenly I could really start to train my hearing, train what I was listening to improve my functional listening and really start to break through like language and culture and hear like, okay this is what is in that technique. That is making it seem like this to me, mm. or this is what's missing, or this is how the singer is trying to get there. And this is how to actually get there. <laughs> um, they're trying to make a chestier sound and they're pressing super duper hard and they're singing really, really heavy and they're wearing themselves out and they can't reliably belt to C five because they're trying to like turn the the low part of their sound into something that sounds really rough. Mm. That's not possible. The low part of the sound is always pure. We want it to stay pure. It's what adds the depth to a belt. Um, it's the high stuff that is really kind of based on efficiency and articulation and resonance. That's the part that's going to give them the edge that they're looking for in their sound. Mm. So uh, the there are several different... Um, like tiers of Vocevista. The one I would recommend any voice teacher or anybody interested in this look at is the medium one, which is Vocevista Video. There's also Pro, uh, if you're doing more research-based work. Uh, And then there's Overtone Analyzer, um, which is the lowest tier. For use in the studio, for use in kind of improving your awareness of what we can pay attention to, in singing for our functional listening. Voce Vista video is really powerful. It has those filters. Um, Overtone Analyzer doesn't have it. It's more just visual. Um, So I wouldn't recommend that for this kind of work Mm. uh, because the filter function is where you're just like, oh, that's what a singer's formant cluster sounds like. Wow. Or, oh my gosh, that's what the first formant on an awe sounds like okay, I can start to pick that out a little bit or Mm -hmm. that's what the fundamental sounds like. That's what it adds to the quality. All right, so if I have a soprano who's working on getting a nice round, classical treble sound, they need a stronger fundamental frequency. They need to pitch or tune pitch, tune their or uh, focus their resonance. They need to uh, align their approach to articulation and resonance in a way that brings out the lowest tones Mm much more than the highest tones. Oh, here's a belt. They're switching now. Now they want to sing in the heights. OK, now how do we reprogram their their timbre, their articulation, how they're using their voice to bring out the highest tones? Mm. And um, so that's the one that I would really, really recommend, strongly recommend. That's the one that's been kind of transformative for me Um, Bodo Moss is the uh, developer behind that and um, someone that um, Ken Bozeman, Ian Howell, Kayla Godero, and I, and Bodo work closely together on our summer uh, vocal acoustics workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, So that would be my strongest recommendation. There are, if you just want a visual, there are mobile apps that are pretty powerful. If you search the app store, you know, look for the ones that cost about $14, $10. Those tend to be interesting. I don't use them much at all because it doesn't have, they're not really calibrated for the work we do in singing. They're more for audio engineers, which is great. Um, but they're kind of fun. We're like, oh, I hear cicadas. I wonder if that's like the same frequency range as the singer's warrant cluster <laughs> Yeah. or like, oh, I'm in a concert right now and the singer's doing something interesting. Maybe I can like notice something um by like using my pocket spectrograph. <laughs> but uh but for like really studying this and working on your functional listening. Um I don't think there's another option out there that does the things that Voce Vista Video does mm. for the price w- and and working so easily on the laptops that we already have.
0: Mm. And how about um books or other resources that you might be able to point us this- towards to help us continue trying to unlock our understanding for this.
1: Sure, sure. So um obviously uh Ken Bozeman is a mentor and friend, so I highly recommend his two books, um uh practical vocal acoustics and kinesthetic vocal pedagogy. Um so that that is where I would start. Um and really has some of the most clear uh uh, discussions and, and transfer to the application side of any writing I know of out there. And, and I know for some people, as you're wading in to this and trying to get familiar with it, it's very challenging at first. It took me about four years of, of working on this before it all started coming together, but it it does take a few passes. And that's where I think the listening side really is the most important. So in my, my pedagogy class, uh, here at Stetson, our acoustics work is really focused on the perception side of noticing the high tones, the low tones, understanding what that tells us about how the voice is working um, and what it tells us about how we could make it work better. Um, so that that's really where I'd start. And I would really recommend that as you're reading through this, what what made those books so powerful for me was the, the kind of follow along um, demonstrations in the Made voice synthesizer, which is a little more difficult to use nowadays on a Mac, but still accessible on a PC, Um, and all the different demonstrations in there. So, because it makes it more real, more tactile, less theoretical, more applicable. Um, So that's, that's how I would recommend kind of going into this, like, okay, all of these terms are trying to desc- are trying to be labels or descriptions for things I'm doing all the time. Mm. Can I notice the thing that this term is trying to describe, and can I make can I notice it enough that it feels real to me, mm. that it becomes much more urgent, or like, oh, that's the thing um, when I first learned about like a crossing of the first uh, first formant with the first two harmonics. So um, when I learned about that from Ken's work, I was like, oh my gosh, when I just started like doing the exercises in there to be like, okay, what is this about? Ah, uh, ooh, uh, wait a minute. That's my memory of my voice change in seventh grade. I remember going, ooh, in choir and being like totally freaked out by it and then making sure I never did that again. <laughs> and um, so, so yeah a lot of that stuff is is really not reinventing singing it's it's describing a lot of sensations that are very vivid and so vivid that they're the things that kind of hang us up mm. in our work that that we don't even realize our body is like reacting to that oncoming change by adding tension and raising the larynx and adding more subglottic pressure to to prevent this upcoming change that it can sense about to happen as a harmonic crosses a formant, Mm. um, that would actually, if we just let that pass skillfully, would get us a much better result. So, So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting. And uh, I really thank you for, for joining me and and making me not second guess my career choice because sometimes <laughs> that's what it feels like when I delve into acoustics. So <laughs> I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: Yeah, so my website is com. It's a little hard to spell, um, but <laughs> uh, but that's it's just my name.com. Um, you can also find me... Uh, and the, from my Stetson University faculty profile. Um, and so, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to uh, answer follow-up questions. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that's the easiest way to find me. My work is also in um, The Evolving Singing Voice by Karen Brunson. So uh, the bulk of my work is in chapter three, but then some of these other ideas we've talked about today are sprinkled through chapters four and eight in that book as well.
0: Lovely. Well, thank you so much. It's been really, really great to meet you and to delve into this a bit more. So thanks so much.
1: Well, thank you, Alexa. Thank you for having me.
0: So did that whet your appetite? Want more of where that came from? then quench your thirst for knowledge by nerding out in our store where you can purchase a whole host of specialist educational videos for singing teachers from building your business to fixing vocal faults or join our membership to get access to them all in your own geeky CPD library. Head over to www.basttraining.com forward slash store to get going. That's www.basttraining.com forward slash store.